Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Learn From Gaming Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we dig into some of our favorite games and discuss what we can learn from them and just why we like them. For those of you counting, this is episode 19, and it's coming at you on March 16th, 2018. My name is Chase Strollenberg, and I am joined by... Stu Gritter. Stu Gritter, the Eeyore of the internet. <laughs> How are you doing, Stu? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, yeah, my entire family's getting over like an illness. I might sound a little bit weird and I might cough every now and again, but that is just uh, normal. That's just fine. the That's cool. legacy effect yeah. of um, this time of year, I guess. So, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, a lot of people are sick right now. Yeah, yeah. So it's okay. Don't don't <laughs> the, don't feel bad about it. I don't. I I only feel as bad as the sickness lets me. So um, right. So anybody who's joining us for the first time, uh, just so that you have kind of an idea of what we're doing, what Stu and I like to do each episode is uh, aside from going through regular uh, video game stuff uh, like news and and uh, stuff that we're playing, we like to talk about. The intrinsic educational value of um, of games that we select because we enjoyed. So uh, this can mean stuff like um, spelling, arithmetic, uh, and often geography. The games that we play that comes up a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, but also we like to talk about like the the socio impacts as well. So uh, like social ramifications and also the the things that kind of sort of help shape who we are. A uh, good example was our internet episode uh, a few episodes ago where we engaged with the internet for the first time as, as young, either young people or young adults, and uh, how that actually shaped us, that, like the games we played and how that shaped us. Um, another example was uh, our tabletop episode about uh, War Machine where we talked about actually engaging with that hobby, the social aspects of that hobby, the competitive nature of uh, some of the aspects of that hobby. Um, and that's what we're trying to do here. We're, we're trying to just sort of explore the the facets of the games that we like and what we took away from them and how they sort of shaped us. So, Stu, uh, now that that's out of the way, did you have anything you wanted to talk about right off the top before we jump into what we learned? And I'm not going to say this week. Let's let's be real. Uh, this <laughs> month? <laughs> it's been a pretty educational month. Uh, nothing, nothing off the top, no. Sorry. Okay, yeah, that's no problem at all. Um, so then, yeah, let's jump right into what we learned this month. And uh, for, again, for anybody new, this is the segment of the show where we discuss what we learned about gaming this month. Um, there's a lot of stuff that happened. I don't think we're going to cover all of it, but we are going to touch on some of the things that we're interested in. Um, it's important to note that for whatever reason, uh, the antiquated approach of blaming video games for, for gun violence... Has come up again and gone to uh, gone to some political purviews, so that's a thing that's happening again. Um, but it's happening. I don't know. <laughs> like it, I, I feel like every day is is a new circus, so it's not a big deal one way or the other. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we're not going to get into the, the loot box talk either, but uh, there is legislation going through for loot boxes as well. Um. The stuff that we do want to talk about, uh, Stu, did you want to talk about one of your things first, or do you want me to talk about one of my things first? Uh, I think the only thing I wanted, I'm, was planning on bringing up right now was the recent articles from Activision Blizzard and yeah. their uh, 
they're the, just the way their finances came up. Actually, now that I've said there's one thing, there is something else that I'm going to have to find. But Activision Blizzard uh, has made, in 2017, they made over $4 billion on just microtransactions and DLC. So I don't think we're going to see loot crates disappear. It is, I mean, a very substantial chunk of their income. It's more than half of their, their total revenue is coming from, the, you know, that that kind of deliverable so yeah it's yeah. um yeah yeah so so kind of get used to it it's gonna Did be it's gonna be something that that companies are gonna move toward right every time we saw like when wow came out every time there was a big a big surge and somebody made a crap ton of money off of something i mean we've kind of seen it uh we knew that the the small dlc thing was gonna be a big draw but now in companies <laughs> like like it's overshadowed wow so yeah. a lot mm. of companies are going to start doing that well yeah here's i've i've spent a lot of time like thinking about this reading about this watching videos about this and the one thing i want to bring up is there is a really and i don't i don't think blizzard is is the uh, the example of this at all but there is a really good video that extra credits did actually there's three of them and it's really just sort of a deep dive into loot crates. But there's also a video about why video games shouldn't be $60 anymore. And it's because, well, I mean, it, it's it's sort of a an exploration of inflation and the way that the gaming industry sort of stalled out charging the way that they charge for games i mean in independent games smaller games yeah you'll still get away with a, a cheaper price tag but the triple a games the argument the argument is that maybe they should be a little bit more but because they don't feel safe doing it because the community will get so upset this is why some of these tactics exist now more specifically i mean blizzard has established that these tactics work incredibly well yeah and I mean the the other thing is this isn't this isn't a new thing, right? No, um, not at all. And I'm actually going to talk about that today. The game that I'm going to talk about is uh, is a game from 2006, which I mean for me when I think about it, it, it still felt newish. But at the end of the day, uh, like it, it uses a lot of the same mechanics that are being talked about today, and it's what 12 years later. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, uh, just interesting, interesting stuff. It's interesting to follow, um, but the I mean the extra credits video. The suggestion is if you don't want this to happen, then you should be ready to pay more than sixty bucks for a game. Yeah, yeah, it, especially the triple A's. Yeah. Cool. Did you want to talk about anything else, or do you want me to jump into my thing? The the other thing that I. Uh, I think I saw this this week, actually, was uh, Google and Ubisoft are holding hands and walking into the sweet sunset of open source game server hosting. What does that mean? Nobody's really sure. Well, no, nobody's really sure yet <laughs> from, from what I've seen. Okay. But but it's the... They, they want to pair up to make... Uh, like dedicated servers, an open source thing that anyone can kind of tap into. So you can create a server, create a game lobby or whatever, and just hook it into their their hosting, their CPU cycles, I guess. 
Wow, okay. Um, hmm. It sounds nice. It, I think. It, it has, yeah. I, I mean, there, there's potential there. It would be kind of... We would probably see, if it is successful, it might be... I don't know. It, it would probably be very similar to what we see from Valve with Steam. The kind of, like, the Steam multiplayer stuff. They have their API that you can tie into. Um, but the fact that it's going to be open source is the the really big deal because it if that does end up being used a lot that's going to be the first like massively used open source thing that's available that's that degree of tech i guess yeah yeah so that's um that'll be interesting now for like the definition of open source isn't that like effectively free yeah that means that the source code is free to download and yeah and and use and modify and whatever do whatever you want with it now, if you start making money, do you have to throw a little bit at them? No, open source is strictly, like, it's it's there. You can download the code and use it for whatever. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah that's actually, uh, I mean, if it's, uh, if it's efficient and it functions, That'd be neat. that could be some serious potential for some less successful companies to actually break into multiplayer realms. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, cool. So, on my end of things, uh, this is more of a, a preservation of uh, video game history, um, which is, I mean, it's pretty close to my heart. Uh, you and I have read a number of novels from the past, but imagine, like, we weren't able to do that because nobody preserved them properly. Mm -hmm. um, the ESA uh, recently started pushing back against preservationist initiatives that would include server-based games. So any server-based game right now. Um, and, I mean, they've got reasons for doing it. I think it's it's really just uh, their lawyers are probably just telling them, like, protect your IPs. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there's a, a few articles that you can find online. I'll make sure to post at least one in the show notes. Um, and it's just, like, in terms of historical preservation of games, this is a major hindrance because there are some games that are basically in, in the ether of the Internet right now that when the servers go down, they're done, Yeah. right? Or there are games that are just unplayable. I mean, a good example was you and I played, or, uh, well, you in particular played uh, Hellgate London. Yep. Yep, yep, um, yep. I don't think that has servers anymore. Uh, it, it went to, there, there were servers in Asia for a while, I believe. I don't, yeah, I don't know if they're still up sure and running. They're, I'm sure they're down by now, too. But. Yeah. Um, Vanilla WoW, like, uh, this is also, like, the, the, the argument of the preservation of a certain state of a game. Um, because as time rolls on, there are some, like, versions of games that you just can't get back if you don't know how. Um, and if there isn't a server dedicated to it. So um, that's where this conversation is going. Yeah. Um, that that's the easiest way to communicate it. Things like also Ultima Online or EverQuest or um, anything like that. The original Guild Wars uh, stuff, uh, stuff similar to that. Dark Age of Camelot. Um, some of these things might still have servers going, but there's I'm not a hundred percent sure if they're all official. Yeah. Um, uh, so I he actually heard about that on Game Scoop, which is uh, which is a, a pretty popular gaming podcast. If you don't know what it is, it was episode uh, four seventy two, and it was about thirty minutes in, and that was the first time that I'd heard of it. And then I went and started looking up some articles. Hmm. Um, on a side note, on that episode, they also discuss that uh, 
um, hmm. Sometimes people will play games that aren't fun, um, and that ended up leading to a <laughs> discussion about what defines a game. So, like the, the games yeah. that scare the crap out of you, like are they really games? Most people would argue that yes, they are. Like there are some games that are just not fun to play. There are some games that put you in very uncomfortable situations. As the tech gets pushed further, like you really, really start to yeah. reach in, into those realms. Um, but then it's like the the line starts to blur between um, the the experience that you get from like a cinematic event um, and and an actual engagement with a game. And there's this whole can of worms about whether or not those cinematic styles of games, those experiences. Uh, walking simulator stuff like that whether that is even actually a game um or if it should just be dubbed an interactive experience um but i thought that that was pretty interesting one of the big takeaways from that episode was games teach you how to play them and they also by their design have to teach you their own rule set and that couldn't be more true now when instruction manuals are no longer packed yeah, in gone. because most people are buying digital like you need to have the tutorial in there teaching right away. Yep. And um, yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting thing. Like the games now always have to teach you how to play them. Yeah. So and, and you even see, I mean, in games like I don't know a couple of these Final Fantasies where people said, "Yeah, I've been playing for like sixty hours, and I I finally am getting to some of the interesting mechanics. They're finally teaching me some of the new stuff." Like, yeah, I think, like it's just some I think games it was take 13 a while was spooling. really guilty of that, and I don't know if 15 was guilty of that, but 13, I remember somebody saying once, um, yeah, I'm 30 hours in, and I'm just starting to really open this game. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Just, or I just got out of the tutorial, and I'm like, holy shit. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I hear you, man. That's neat. So, yeah, so that's all I've got. Um did you want to talk about anything else, or are we good? Uh, no, we're good. All right. So then uh, I guess we're going to jump into the next section of the show, which is what we learn from gaming. So this is the section of the show where Stu and I pick a game, each of us pick a separate game, and we uh, choose to focus on what we learn from it. So, Stu, um, I'm going to start coughing a little bit, so how do you feel about going first? Oh, yeah, sure. That's That's, okay, that's cool. all good by me. I'm also um, going to mute myself while I do it, so give me a sec. Okay, yeah. Okay. Oh, this is fantastic. This is the part of the show where I I am the, the reigning... Uh, I was going to say king, but it's like a kingdom of two. It's kind of shitty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. The um, So the game I'm going to talk about is... Uh, it's it's an older kind of turn-based strat ish yeah i guess it's a turn-based strat um here's my magic three so it was uh released early 1999 it was in the middle of a big series of turn-based strategy games uh i think five i think here's my magic six was released a couple years ago yeah Yep, it was. Um, I can't remember exactly when, but I own it. And the yeah, it's it's been it's been really interesting. Um, trying to think, I don't think I ever played one and two, so I'm just gonna dive into the mechanics of number three. 
basically usually you would just play a big kind of multiplayer map often with friends because it was more fun to play multiplayer there were a bunch of different races you would pick a race and pick a starting hero and you'd start in a town every player would start with their own town towns could make troops every week you could spend gold to make new buildings in all of those cities and the new buildings would give you better troops so you could unlock higher levels of troops and each level of troop could be upgraded to be like a slightly shinier version sometimes with an additional ability or something uh, and the objective was usually just to take all of the other cities so there was a lot of resource management going on when you popped into the map you want to get all these buildings but you could uh, you could only build one building every day a day was a turn and it would take gold so you could upgrade your city to make more gold every turn or you could upgrade your city to give you a lot more creatures to choose from yeah there were also uh, strategic resources too right like additional stuff like ore and wood and um, sulfur I think yeah there was ore there, there was wooden stone which was used for most of the buildings there were crystals and gems and like sulfur and mercury and yeah I th I th maybe ore or something else too I'm not, I don't, don't remember offhand there were but a, a lot of different resources and you would have to leave your city and go and kind of capture places that would give you more of these resources every turn so that would lead to skirmishes out in the field which was pretty good um, and they there would be neutral neutral uh, camps I guess of minions all over the place which would be the same kinds of troops that every different race could make and they would just be there you would have to defeat them to get to the resources that they were hiding so usually there would be a wood mill and a stone a stone mine guarded by low-level guys and then there might be a gold mine or a crystal house crystal I guess that's probably a mine as well um, guarded by a slightly higher level kind of monster uh, this got to be more interesting because the races were so different so the, there were eight different races they were you know they ranged from the human the goodly human to the undead to kind of underground monsters to elves and fairies and you, know, you get the whole spread fantasy setting spread so battles between the different races would be uh, non non parallel I guess so a big part of the battles was having ranged units because then you could whittle down their, their strong guys before they get to you and smash your face in. So that it kind of turned into a little bit of tactical combat with uh, a hex grid that you could move your guys around and cast spells and walk at each other and try and box people in. Different castles you could level up and you could have, I think, two different tiers of, of, of moat and towers that would, you know, help defend all the time. Your armies could only move with heroes, which was weird. Um, in an earlier earlier episode, we talk, talked a bit about Warlords 2, and or Warlords 3, 
or all of the warlords. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> we, where, we talked about one of them. And you could you could move your troops with abandon in that game, and th- and that's the one that I played earlier. So it was strange to me that you could, you you would have to make these massive armies, but you had to send them out with a hero, so you couldn't really spread out across the landscape. And I think that makes the game play more quickly and blah, 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 blah. But it also really reduces, like it narrows your focus all the time. You're very restricted by what your heroes can do. Now your heroes yeah. level up and everything and they get equipment and there's like a little bit of an RPG thing with them getting stronger, maybe getting better spells and all that jazz. But for the most part, a lot of it was just building your army, going and smashing somebody else's army. Um stomping on the corpses and laughing and taking their cities. Yeah, there was also um, artifacts in the game. And depending on the type of um, the type of win conditions you set at the beginning of the game, if you weren't playing the campaign, because there was also a campaign, mm-hmm. um, there were um, major artifacts that you could find. You would, like put together, I think, pieces of a map, and eventually you could find like a super artifact. Yeah. That was actually a win condition if you found it. Yeah, so sometimes they were a win condition. Sometimes they were just a thing that you could bring back to your city and make a unique building. Typically, it would just be a massive economic boost. Um, typically, I think outside single player, the the general consensus was if you're doing that, you're you've already won, kind of thing. You're really only safe to do that if you're already you know, leveraging everything and, and getting other people back out of position and, and taking more resources and all that kind of thing. Um, so what all of that kind of meant, I guess the, uh, the turn by turn strat kind of gave you a chance to think things through. Um, the weak timing, I really want to talk about that. Cause that was, that was something that stood out. That's, uh, actually a really unique mechanic rather than just a standard you know every turn you get this much stuff every turn you get that much stuff they went off of weeks so this the buildings that you built in your cities would allow you to recruit troops but they had a a maximum number that you could buy so every week you could buy say seven archers if you buy those seven archers you can't get seven more archers until the turn of the week so you have kind of seven turns to uh, acquire the money to hire all of the troops that you can and then start to build more buildings but if you're sitting there on tons and tons and tons of gold and you've already bought all of your troops th- then that just it doesn't help you you kind of you have a resource cap like an, an effectiveness resource cap where yeah you just you can't produce any more units, you can't buy anymore. So that that was it was I think the first game I ever saw that had the days for turns and then a separate cycle for how many troops you could recruit. So the economic scale was on a day to day and the production scale was week by week. So that was that was really interesting. Uh, every week also had a random thing. I don't know how many different options there were but it would be like week of the rat or week of the griffin and if you could make griffins then you would be able to get more griffins this week or it'd be week of the archer or week of the skeleton or you know whatever just randomly chosen it's just a 
it didn't didn't really have a big impact. It was it was mostly flavor. <laughs> Unless it was Week of the Dragon. Yeah, yeah. Week Week of the Dragon was always good for everyone. <laughs> for anyone who can make dragons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so the the races were very different as well. They would have like it wasn't like every every race had a level one militia man, and their level two guy was an archer, and the level three guy was a swordsman or anything like that. They were they were quite disparate. They were very unbalanced. I th I th yeah yeah <laughs> That's putting it so, yeah some races were very much better than others. They might have had different power curves, but. I'm gonna talk about that with the pros and cons later. Uh, heroes had magic. Some of them had magic. Some of them would just beef up your troops and make your dudes tougher. Yeah, this was one of the first games that I remember. Uh, I remember number two. And number two, the heroes still felt kind of generic. Okay. Number three was one of the first times that they started uh, differentiating. There was like the melee mm -hmm. uh, um, and... Uh, I guess they sort of focused more on their creatures, yeah. Um, leaders, so like the warlords, and then there was the like sorcerers and spellcaster, yeah, uh, type heroes. And it was it was really weird. It kind of stuck with uh, RPG archetypes at the time, where like early on, it's great to have the 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 military leaders, but man, the end game magic was just devastating. Yeah, it it was uh it was like battle altering. Yeah, like be week of the dragon didn't mean shit if you had a level sixteen <laughs> wizard. Like yep. it just didn't matter. <laughs> uh, yeah, which which is kind of too bad. It would have been nice to see something a little bit different there. If, if I don't know how much time they actually spent on that. The the I guess a lot of magic systems of that time <laughs> didn't seem like they spent a lot yeah. of time on it right no in in my head in my head just thinking about it uh the way that it played at launch um all i can think is they did not balance this game <laughs> that's all oh, i can think no. like no, i, I assume they might have tried a little bit at first but i oh no no and and okay i'll probably get into this right now then because i i think deep down the designer in me thinks that if the game was a lot slower, it would feel more balanced. Because the different races do have different strengths at different tiers of unit. So you could, you know, pick this race and, and aim for a level, you know, a victory once you've gotten your level 3 and level 4 troops out. And you've gotten two weeks of those troops masked up. Then you can head out and really crush with this superior army at this point. And and the same goes for. There aren't there there are fewer decisions than it seems because the economy is so important. Like, having buildings that let you buy troops when you don't have the money to buy troops is stupid. So you need to get the gold, the buildings that give you money first. There's just no way around that. But you can also use the. Um, there is a marketplace that you can use to uh, shift resources like, into money but it's really not enough and then you're gimping and money yourself into heavily. resources yeah and money into resources so that that's you get like you use that for situations like when okay i've got way too much money all right i'm gonna shift and get some ore and then i'm gonna build this uh, new addition because i've still got two to three days i can recoup the the cost before creatures respawn right so yeah but i mean early on 
getting the the buildings that give you that gold getting the buildings that give you those resources every day if you don't do those early you're just gonna have a bad time and you don't really have a choice in that matter <laughs> yeah you know yeah, and that's true like generally after after two maybe three weeks of turns most people have their city fairly fully built and that's a that's a pretty quick it's like 20 turns where like you're done the 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 economy side and that that kind of resource management puzzle is over very very yeah, quickly if if you're not at about top tier creatures by the end of week 2 week 3 um you might be doing something wrong yeah so uh, that's i think what what one of the reasons why i think maybe it was it would be a little bit better if things were stretched out like the the numbers game would make more sense if it was stretched out but i think the game play would be intensely dull if they did that which is too bad so well, especially considering how long games already, already are, are yeah. yeah yeah and it, it's not like, like we're talking hours and they're not action-packed no so it, it's it's frustrating because it's a glimpse of something that could have been really really neat and really interesting and it kind of just was a uh, you have to make some decisions every now and then and you kind of plan out your routes where you're gonna explore what resources you need and it was parts of it were fun with the interplay between when your armies met someone else's armies for the first time every game and you you didn't have a really good idea of what to expect you didn't know how many of any troop they would have you didn't know if their if their heroes were really good at you know casting certain spells or anything that would really really hurt you you didn't know if they just they happen to have way more archers than you thought and then your front line is going to get decimated before it can do anything that was really to me the 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 crux of the uh the interesting part of the game So the setup beforehand and getting your buildings and making sure that your long-term plan of, yes, okay, I can make my armies now. That was all there and that was all well and good. It was, you know, standard kind of like economic structure and resource management. But those, when you got your heroes, your first heroes armies to the borders, the border points where you know the other guy's exploring and you're kind of exploring and you're trying to feel each other out that was i think the most most important the most interesting part of the game so Stu, did you play this with your friends at all i or did you play it by yourself i sure did both of those okay. i i played very little by myself i didn't play any of the like you said there was a campaign i didn't really know that it yeah. was um we did yeah mostly mostly multiplayer yeah my um my circle of friends we had this weird sort of renaissance with uh heroes of might and magic 2 where it was the game um <laughs> and everybody was playing it and we'd all go over to each other's houses and, and play it together i remember uh, we had one friend pam um she she was like crazy about this game and she uh like I, we would go over and it was just <laughs> Not sorry, not three, uh, two. I everybody got crazy for three as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I feel like three is a 
I know three three has sort of a weird place in my memory. So, um, but I I do remember playing a lot of two um, multiplayer, and we would never finish the games. Did you ever <laughs> finish your games? Oh yeah, yeah we would. Oh good for you. You must have been playing on small maps. Probably we probably did that specifically because otherwise they would never get finished. Yes, yeah. And we it, often played on large maps. And then, well, and again, it's part of that when you're playing in a large map, if you're, you know, you're in one quadrant and you're kind of boxed in with one other dude, when you're winning against that dude, you know you will beat him. And when, yeah. like, like the, the outcome becomes apparent long before the game is over. Like you, you, yeah, and it stops being fun. Yeah, because it 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 would often get to a point where okay, this is my death ball, and I'm gonna roll it over your face for the next two and a half hours, and you're not gonna be able to stop my army. And if you do, by the time you do, I'm gonna have another six weeks of creatures coming down the line. That's gonna be, you know, just immensely more impressive than this army, and you will not stop that one. So, in that sense, the game didn't really close out very well. Which is too bad, but. But what turn-based strats really do? Yeah, yeah. No, that's <laughs> you know? that's very true. Yeah, that's one. It's one of the failings of a of a turn-based strat. Yeah. Um. So, hmm. What do you think you learned from this game, Stu? It was interesting. It there was a bit of resource management in it. I think that the resource management could have been done better to be more interesting and a bit more complex. Um, you, the day economy versus week getting the troops was really, really interesting. That was a really unique mechanic that you kind of had to balance multiple things. And I think that came more into play when you had multiple cities early in the game. And we did from time to time play maps that had that and then that that economy that I was complaining about with the the almost staggered reward system but something where you had to push for economy really hard it was a little bit harder to make that kind of one-sided decision if you had multiple cities to control very early so that was that was kind of a good thing um you learned a little bit about, I guess, I mean, that's more the uh, the game's mechanics themselves, but the just the, the common interactions between troops and retaliation and alpha strikes and, you know, very basic tactics. If you didn't understand basic tactics, you would have a bad day. I think there's, there's not really any getting around that. Mm, no, but I, but I feel like... As I remember, I mean, it's it's stack combat, so when I say stack, I mean your units are stacked up, and it's just a single, um, it's just a single, like, image yeah, representing if, your warriors. If you have 900 gremlins, yeah, if you have 900 gremlins, they take up the same space as one gremlin. Just 900 yeah. gremlins, when they attack somebody's somebody else's units, they will do 900 times the damage. Yeah, but I feel like the the way that tactical combat played out, you started, like, you could see what the computer was doing, so it wasn't hard to emulate it. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that 
you would develop tactics past what the computer could do because I, I, there was only so much tactical depth to the game itself. Yeah. But um, y- there were lessons to be learned for sure, um, even when you lost a battle in that game. Yep. Like, yeah, it was super basic. I think grand strategy, there was nothing nothing really to it. The, I think that's that's a result of the hero's... I don't know. You could kind of try to deny resources a little bit, but wasn't really a thing. Um, I think the uh, yeah the resource management and the the timing of when and where to move your troops, and just understanding that just because you have three shiny new griffins in your army, uh, that doesn't really mean much. You know, like, not, like, not if like they die. some, some people get really, ex- <laughs> well, because some people get really excited with that. Like in any, any strat game, they're like, yes, I finally got the, the tech, like research done to, to let me make this new thing. And I finally have one. Oh, I'm going to kick everyone's ass with my one tank or my one cavalier. And you bring out your, you know, your magnum opus piece on the battlefield and it gets fucking crushed <laughs> because that's yeah. just not how things work. You know, especially by the time that you've run your one Cavalier three quarters of the way across the map and like two weeks have gone by. So now your Cavalier gets eaten by a horde of dragons. You just, you got to deal with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So that resource management, some timing stuff, basic, basic tactics. Um, a little bit, I guess there was a little bit of risk management. A lot of games seem to have that when you really cut into them. But, like, attacking all the neutral camps. Like I said, there would be resources that you could acquire that would give you stuff every day, but they would be guarded by a neutral camp. And you don't always know if you're going to win those fights early on. And you kind of have to gauge with your army, uh, you know, do, do you have something that you can exploit? You know, do you have a bunch of range stuff and they don't? Can you use that? Do you have enough? Eh. Yeah, because when you hover your cursor over those neutrals, uh, dep- like you can get skills that would actually, it it would it was like turning up the precision, right? Because in yeah. that game you had the option to go down a skill tree where, if you upped your um, uh, recon, you could actually see how many units were in there, but base level heroes you look at a stack of units it's just like there are a few whatever few some lot pack horde throng like they they were not super helpful terms yeah Yeah. i'm sure some people knew them and and knew those numbers but i i didn't like few is not many so that's great but you also didn't know if they were the base level or if they were the upgraded versions so yeah that that's true because sometimes just because they were represented by the one didn't mean there wasn't a stack of upgrades in there and then that made a big difference if there were there were some units in the game that would be melee but if you upgraded them then they would be ranged yeah so if you were expecting an easy fight because you could whittle down some troops or like a close fight where you could whittle down some troops and win and then turns out they're all ranged you can't have a bad day yeah yeah. <clears throat> but um yeah. 
So resources, timing, a bit of risk management, basic tactics, nothing much in the way of strat. A little bit of cooperating yeah. with people, maybe if you're trying to, I don't know, if you did have, like, if you were in a multiplayer game that where you had teams or anything like that, a little bit of um, maybe some mind games, you know, showing people part of your army and, and trying to sneak something heavier in and like surprise somebody with a bigger more impressive army than what they thought you had but even that was really really difficult to do I mean, <laughs> yeah there wasn't fog of war in that game either as i recall like once you explored the map you knew the map so yeah that could get a little harder later on yeah but it, but again it, it, it to me it relied on that when you're bumping into somebody and you're doing that initial recon you know if you know you've locked off this bridge or they've locked off this bridge and, and you haven't crossed each other there. You don't know what's on the other side. You don't know if someone is going heavy economy or if they, you know, are trying to rush a certain tier of creature or so there's that little bit of tension there that you can play off of, but that that really was about it. Okay. So Yeah. <laughs> that's it for Heroes of My Magic Three yeah, for you? Yeah, I, th I I think so. That's I think more than I was even expecting. Cause it's Well you'd be surprised it, what you can get out of Heroes of Might and Magic Three. Yeah, would you? I don't know. It's it uh, seems yeah. simple enough to me. I don't know. But no, <coughs> it was good. It was it was fun. It was fun. I'll talk about Heroes of Might and Magic Three someday. Yeah. You mean two? <laughs> no, three. Oh, all right. Three. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think that today's the right day for it, but uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised what you can take away from a game. Um, yeah. Uh, cool. So, yeah. anything else you want to say? Any parting words before we jump into my game? No, I think I think that's it. I don't have anything else about it. That's it. That's okay, that's sorry. that's the game. That's Heroes Heroes <coughs> Three. There was an expansion pack for it. They released, uh, yeah. a, they added a new race. My understanding was it was OP because, you know, that's what people did with their DLC. Well, the new race, <laughs> it, it wasn't too complicated. It was the elemental it was elementals race. or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think it was very hard to manage it. Uh, I think they had to invent a few creatures, but then, like, the, the middle tier was basically all the elementals. Um, mm. And I don't remember what the top tier of that was. But, um, yeah, again, poorly balanced. Yeah. Which is too bad. But, yeah. you know, again, this was, this was pretty, pretty early on. And they were, like, eight different races and quite different units. Like, it wasn't like humans were humans and the, the undead were just skeletal versions of the humans. They were fairly different. So. Yes. Yeah. Balancing that would have been very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, what you got? If they even tried. Oh, I'm okay. sure they did. Um, Somebody did. They probably had one person on their team that was trying to balance it. He spent yeah, his life drinking and screaming. Despair. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. So today I'm going to talk about uh, Pox Nora, which is, um, I mean, it was initially on PC. I think now, uh, well, I don't know about now now, but... Um, Eventually, it ended up on uh, PlayStation. I think either Play PlayStation Three, I believe, uh, is the the where you could play it as well. 
Um, it might be on PlayStation 4 now. Uh, somebody may have done a port for it. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Desert Owl has. Uh, but, um, so... Uh, it was originally designed by Octopi Media uh, Design Lab. I can't remember if they owned the game um, when I got into it or not. I got into it in 2008, but it was originally published in 2006. Uh, it would get acquired by Sony Online Entertainment um, because I guess that's just something they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, the genre type, for anybody who's not familiar with this game, um, and not a lot of people are anymore, yeah. uh, it was a co collectible card-based army builder. Um, and that was sort of the back end of it. The front end of it, the, uh, the, the meat of the gameplay was a turn-based strat. So I guess turn-based strat is the term of the day. Yep. And how it worked was you would assemble, um, you would assemble decks from cards that you collected, and um, you would be able to use those those decks in combat in an, in the turn-based setting. So there would be a map uh, on one end would be an enemy temple, on the other end would be your temple, um, and you would start summoning things or casting spells uh, based on the amount of. Nora that you collected. Nora is basically like mana or magic power. Um, and there were a number of wells uh, throughout the map that you could acquire and possess. And if you converted them to your, to your army, then uh, they would produce more Nora for you, which means you can produce more units and cast more spells and cause all kinds of shenanigans. Um, and that was really it. Now... Uh, what was really really interesting about this game i mean there there were also like there was a bunch of single player content uh that really sort of mix or messed up the core mechanics so objectives would be all all kinds of different it'd be like oh kill this one unit or um uh, kill these units by this time period a lot of killing <laughs> or get this unit to the edge of the board yeah. uh stuff like that but the the main mechanic was uh, using the decks that you have to destroy the other opponent's temple. Like that, the temple was like the focus. Uh, it it was the end game state. So if you could get like an assassin unit or something up the table and just really start knocking it, I mean temples had a lot of health, so it took some time. But um, yeah, you could uh, get nervous. That was how you that was how you won it. Mm. Um, so in terms of educational value um deck building uh meant lots of experimentation uh lots of trial and error as you tried to figure out what decks uh could be competitive or could even be successful in the single player because it was actually quite a learning curve to some of the single player content um you had to learn how to combo which not everybody will understand but it's where you find uh two cards or more cards that have an ability uh, that synergizes. So uh, when these two things show up together or when this one thing gets affected by this other thing, um, it, it is super effective. So it, it becomes more powerful and it makes your opponent really stop and think about what's going on or your opponent just gets upset because you just ruined them. Um, so that's what, uh, that's what comboing is. And a good example would be... Um, I remember in the early days when I would play, I would play the Ice Faction, um, and mostly the the race was called the Jakai, 
and there were there was this card that I got. It was called uh, Jakai uh, Extinguisher, and what he would do is he would put out fires and protect your entire your entire um, army from being lit on fire. But the other thing that he did was uh, he projected an ice aura out from him, so anything that was within two movement spaces of him got hit for ice damage. And so the combo that I, I ended up creating was I had these ice elementals that when they got hit with any ice damage, they would eat it and recover health. So I would just surround this guy with ice elementals and then walk this like <laughs> this elemental wall up the board. Um, and that, that was always really fun. So it was doing stuff like that, just trying to read the cards, figure out in uh, the theory crafting that yeah, you, you like there to we talk go. about. Like just just trying to imagine how these things would play out on the board or just uh, just saying screw it i'm 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 not going to try to even think about it i'm just going to experiment with it that's a lot more trial and error but um yeah the theory crafting of trying to figure out how how these cards went together or actual uh, practical play to figure out how they went together was a big big factor um at high levels of play memorization of uh of cards and their abilities was a big deal um, it would definitely it would definitely give you a competitive edge. I'm not saying everybody did it. I'm not saying I even came close. But uh, if you were in that meta, if you are still in that meta because the servers are still up, um, you are very familiar with exactly what is going on in that game and what is efficient and what isn't. So, um, and that was something that uh, when we talked about War Machine and Hordes, that was another thing that not a lot of people realized, but the, the people who understood every faction and every unit and what they did, Ugh. which is a staggering thing to be able to do, yes. but some people take the time to do it. Um, oh, yeah. Some of them were actually the, 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 the best players, especially if they were familiar with playing to begin with, yeah. because they, they understood the abilities and limitations of most of the units. Because it's it's one not it, easy to do. Though. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where in in games like that, or I would imagine Boxnor, where in you know that that lack of information can be what kills you if you don't know what's yeah. like you need to know what's coming to be able to prepare for it properly. Yeah. Um. The 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 good thing is like complete transparency on the board, right? Yeah. So once something's on the board, you can see what it is. If a spell gets cast, you can look into the. Uh, into the uh the the battle log to see what it was and, and what, what it, it did. did yeah but but that's just it looking into the battle log is that that that's a history that that's done yep <laughs> if <laughs> yeah, a bad thing I just agree. happened it might be too late i agree <laughs> that doesn't pr- like um and there was some serious uh some very very strange mixes that you could do like you could do hybrid uh I don't know. The best way to describe this is um, uh, the analog, I guess, would be Magic the Gathering, where mm-hmm. there were, um, like in Magic, there's uh, earth, fire, water, wood, and then life and death, right? Um, so in Pax Nora, there is a Stronghold, um, oh god, I'm already forgetting, Swamp, uh, Trees, so like elven um underworld ice desert and i think goblin um <laughs> which is like step huh. is steps is what they refer to themselves oh, okay. as um and uh 
you could mix and match. Um, like you, I think you had to limit it to two factions, so you could have a half and half. But um, like you could mix and match any two factions. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure you could even mix and match like life and death. Um, like it was uh, just such an there was such a wide range of options and customization that you could try and predict it. Um, if you knew that somebody was a purist and they were just going a single like a, a single faction, then it's okay, cool. Well, I in the meta you know um, some of the best cards in that faction, so you have a pretty good idea. And also when you're playing, um, this game really, really l uh, lent to themes. So um, you could have like a full dark elf deck or. I've got, I still have to this day, uh, I think it's called an anthropod deck, which is just a bunch of bugs that get benefits when more bugs are on the board, um, and that's that's really fun. Um, I have a slag deck as well, which is basically just like these ooze creatures um, that um, there's like one or two of them that really amp up the rest of them if you can get a bunch of them on the board, so I have fun with that as well, um, or did, I haven't played it a lot in the, the last few <laughs> uh the last few years but um i mean that's that's sort of the core of it um additionally this game had something that we have been talking about a lot and that is it relied heavily on the magic the gathering style booster model yeah uh which people have come to refer to as basically the loot box uh, mechanic yeah. um and so how how the how the booster model works and or the loot box model works is you have um, you have a booster now Poxnora had different sets um, so you would buy a booster from a set uh, sometimes using in-game currency if you could save it up but generally most of these games are set up so that you spend money um, so you buy a booster for money, um, and that's why they roll out new sets, so that the new sets cost money, you can't possibly buy it with uh, in-game currency, you have to wait for uh, basically a few more expansions before you can even access the new stuff with the the in-game stuff, you, you, if you want the bright and shiny, you have to, to pay money right away, but how boosters work is it's a, it's a variable result, so when you buy a booster you have a percentage chance of getting like you're guaranteed to get at least a rare um and that's the thing all of these cards come in uh common uncommon rare ultra rare and legendary um and you can imagine how easy it is to get legendary there's also a th uh, a final category that is unlimited and those are literally cards that uh show up for special events run for a little while and then you never see them again so you you grab them while you can or whatever um but like just trying to understand they're like the the rare ultra rare and legendaries these were what people tried to farm for and this is where the loot crate mechanic comes yep. in so you throw money at it for the possibility that you will get better than a rare because you will always get one rare in every pack. Um, and that's where they would start having promotions like buy 10 packs, get a guaranteed ultra rare or a guaranteed legendary. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it's how you make money. Because 
uh, y- you just keep buying those packs thinking, okay, it's going to be the, the one. next this one. Is whatever the one. Is that I'm this looking, is the yeah, one. Whatever it is that I'm looking for. And this is where things got really complicated, right? Like, there are more factions in this game, I think, than there were in, in Magic. So you if you know what the cards are that are coming out, and, uh, I mean, of course the game had a list in it, so you could see what was coming out, you could see what the abilities were, you could try to plan for how you were going to build your deck, assuming that you were going to get that card. Um, <laughs> like, you could drop a lot of money if you were thinking that just using, uh, like, just buying boosters was going to get it for you. Now, how I undercut this, I mean, initially what I did was I got into this game when I didn't have a lot of money, so I was limited in what I could do. But I played this this game over a number of years, and I definitely spent, I would say, more money than I would spend on a pro a, a, a AAA game. Um, I, like getting close to a hundred dollars, mm-hmm. uh, if not if not more. Like there's a possibility I lost track. But um, what I ended up doing is turning to the there was a there was a trading system that was in game for a little while. Um, oh wow, yep. yeah, I did play this game before Sony bought it because once Sony bought it, Sony quashed the in game trading system. Ah, uh, that's a bit. Do yeah <laughs> yeah they they put That's an end gross. to the in-game trading system. Yeah. Um, Were when you bought a booster, did you get to select for which faction, or was it like Magic where no. okay no no oh sorry no Sony didn't kill the in-game trading system. Oh, okay. That's that's per se. <laughs> what they what they did do is they made it so that it wasn't a direct trade anymore. You had to basically like post the trade, mm. and then um, people would effectively bid on it. Um, now they could bid on it with cards, um, or I think they could bid on it with in-game currency, probably, uh, or not in-game currency, like actual currency. Um, but what I ended up doing is turning to the black market, um, which is a polite way of saying there was a, a there was a, a site where you could go and you could buy cards and then what you would do is you would say exactly what you were going to put up for trade. You created a specific trade with a specific name and then within the hour, the trade would would be fulfilled. Yeah, and they would shoot you the cards that you wanted. And it was an interesting sort of like fringe thing that happened, but it was how competitive players were able to build the decks that they wanted because as time went on and the series expanded and each new set came out, like it, there were some sets that just harder and harder and harder to get what you wanted. Like the, the libraries grew, right? The libraries just grew and grew and grew. And so every time I came back to that game, if I wanted to, get as modern as possible i would just turn to that black market and i did that regularly which meant that i stopped giving my money to to the company and was giving it to a a third party and so that's where i mean that that game is sort of in the state that it's in now where i can log on to the server the server's still going it's owned by uh desert owl and they've released i think one or two expansions since they acquired it but there's like 27 people on that server right now, and that's it. <laughs> that's too bad. Right? Yeah. 
And if I want to play a competitive game, you better believe I'll get into it and I will get destroyed because that is the 27, <laughs> 27 best players play. of all time. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, they oh, are yeah. some of the They're not best screwed players. Around. You, and anybody trying to enter this game now, like Pox Nora, I love – here's the thing. Like, I love this game. The uh, Like, the, the customization, the way the combat works, like, all of it, turn-based, uh, sort of like grid-based combat – the sort of stuff that, um, I mean, it's a little toned down from something like Final Fantasy Tactics, uh, only because it's, it's different, right? Yeah. Uh, there are ways to completely break this game over your knee um, if, you, if you set combos up right. But the thing is, you're playing, when you play competitively, you're playing against other people who can do the exact yeah, same thing yeah. and have spent a long time <laughs> yeah. doing it. Um, and so... When you wa- and the, the best part was this was one of the first games I ever saw that was a turn-based strat where you could actually watch other people. So you can go in and watch some of the best oh. players playing right now and, yeah, and just learn and from just their strategies. That. That'd be neat, yeah. But then good luck producing those those results, like those reproducing cards. those armies, yeah. because you, like you have to construct that whole deck brand new. And these are people who have, I mean, assuming they started between two thousand and six and two thousand and eight. Like ten years of cards. Yep. Um, so that's a few. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anybody out there is listening and they play Poxnora and they want to play with me, let me know because I want to get a few more good games in of that game before the, the servers. And if down. you're one of those twenty-seven, let me know too because I want to watch that. <laughs> you can probably record it, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, like. I had some really fun, yeah. uh, really fun times playing this game. Uh, never got seriously competitive, but uh, back when there were hundreds of people instead of thousand, yeah. uh, instead of twenty-seven people, uh, it was it was Still a good time. Crazy good fun, um, yeah. So that was probably so was that your first real deck builder experience? Well, no, Ma- okay. Magic the Gathering was, yeah. but uh, we're we're saving that for a yeah. later date. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it was it was my first encounter with like the ease of purchase for online. Okay. Right, it was so easy yeah. to set up my account and then just buy another booster. Yeah, right, just buy another one, buy another one, um, lose track until you get what you wanted. Yep. Um, at a time of my life when that shouldn't have been happening, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like um, that's how it always is. Um, Student loans uh, should have definitely come first. I, like living, uh, oh yeah, bills, yeah, anything groceries should have yeah. come first. Um, yeah, and uh, this was one of those games that uh, that taught me how to rein myself in as well, because somebody had to. Uh, nobody <laughs> was really paying attention. Yeah, right. Like, um, so yeah, yeah, that's fair. So like. Pros incredibly customizable. Uh, the options like huge scope of options yeah. for this game, um, and the the deck building and the combos and the synergy, the theory craft, all of that stuff is awesome. Actually playing the game, um, seeing how things play out, that's a really really enjoyable thing. Um, cons: the money sink is huge. Yeah. Um, no one plays anymore except for the top tier players. So if you're looking to get uh, PvP game, which were some of the most fulfilling versions of play for yeah. that. Um, it's a little harder. Um, so, like, I don't know. In summary, like at at this game's peak, 
it was exactly what I wanted from a turn-based strategy. Like, I left this game uh, and basically moved in with you uh, the first time that I played it. I would keep going back to it, but mm-hmm. the first time that I played it, and then we found Thresh Wars, which was just a different type of turn-based strategy. Yeah. Um, but, like, the deep customization with lots of options and a meta that refreshed every new set kept the game engaging and interesting. Um, I mean, its decline is simply a result of time, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. There are other games out there that do this better now. So Duelist is a good example, uh, which is another, yeah. basically, it's like a collectible card game. Um, the The maps are much smaller. It's like a confined space, so like battles are so much more brutal and like just that is the point of that game it's just like get in your face beat the crap out of each other um and it's more appealing and i get that because some of the maps of pox nora were huge and uh made for some interesting tactics but also uh made the games a lot longer yeah um also this game taught me a lot about myself and how to properly engage with uh, the loot box mechanic I'm not saying I'm great at it, but at uh, at 34, almost 35, I know how to throw a little bit of money at a game now and then just stop. Um, I have learned the hard way once or twice before, and um, yeah, I'm not going to do isn't, that. Again. Isn't isn't learning the hard way twice and then the easy way once? Isn't that not learning twice? Well, um, some people need that reinforcement okay okay fair yep not everybody's gonna learn the lesson the first time around yeah um i mean i i remember learning in school that uh we are creatures that learn through logic but i like to think that we are creatures that learn through trial and error and sometimes that first error isn't enough yeah no no we're not we're (laughs) not logical creatures yeah i have i have that on Um, pretty good authority (laughs) yeah so, um, yeah, you know what? I think that's all I got for Pox Nora. Right. Uh, interesting, interesting game. Yeah. And one of those things that if you can't secure a server, that game is just going to disappear. Yeah. And it and it's too bad because, like, like I, I missed the the kind of the it's it's popular boom, I guess. And it, it had so many things that were like kind of appealing, but it just never really roped me in. And I I don't know. I wish I would have had a chance to engage with them more. I feel like I could have pulled out some interesting experiences and some some really yeah, good experiences like, out of it. But think it just about didn't uh, that game. What was it, Faria, that we were playing yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. with your friend Joel? Yeah. Uh, didn't even touch yeah. the surface of the depth that you could get with Pox Nora. Yeah, like, for sure. Didn't, not even close. Um, and same thing with uh, Scrolls from Mojang, which I believe has shut down now or is going to very soon. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, um, yeah. Yeah, because reasons. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, really had a good time. Um, yeah. I keep wanting to get into Duelist, but the longer I wait, the harder yeah, it gets. Yeah, for sure. Uh, ne- and what's interesting is Duelist is going through the same cycle that, that Pox Nora went through. And it is that, like, it has been acquired by Namco, uh, Bandai Namco. In the same way that um, Poxnor got acquired by Sony. Uh, Sony, so I'm not sure how that impacts it. Also, I don't think that Duelist actually had a trading system. I don't think it has an inherent <sighs> trading see, system. That, that kind of game where you're getting those boosters, like it's such an integral part. Like even, like you compare it to Magic, and even I think Digital Magic had the same, 
same thing. Like you, you just you have cards that are useless to you, and your friend has cards that are useless to him. You just trade them. It's that easy. It's I that think simple. you can melt them. I think in Duelist you can melt them down. Oh, right. So like, if oh you yeah, cards you can melt no, them I, down, and based on rarity, it gives you more of the stuff that yeah. allows you to get more cards. So that you can take what should be valued at ten dollars and instead melt it down to one dollar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, bastards. Yeah, I mean, I haven't spent enough time with Duelist to give uh, an educated opinion on it. Mm -hmm. I I played it back in beta, and it is a very different animal than what it was. Um, Fair enough. But, uh, yeah, okay, Poxnora. That's all I'm going to say about that. If you've ever played it, write in, tell me about it. If you're still playing it, let me know. (laughs) If you know somebody who knows somebody who plays Poxnora, I mean, track them down. Yeah, it was not a popular game. I don't think it was ever popular. It was always a niche yeah. game. Okay. Well, hey, I think that's uh, I think that's that. So maybe, 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 maybe. Um, let's switch into the next section. Okay. Okay. So the next section is what you can teach us. So um, we have a couple of emails today. Steve. Yeah, we do. We've actually got three, so um, I think I think I'm gonna start with Robert. All right. So I'm just gonna jump right into yeah. it. So <clears throat> I'll try to be Robert. No, I won't. <laughs> okay, hey guys, um, I like to know if you <laughs> if you have ever played a non-educational game that sparked a desire to learn more about something. I believe I wrote in a while back. Uh, trying to learn how to play Europa Universalis 4, but that game also sparked in me the interest to learn a bit about history, especially European history, and what a dark time it was. <laughs> um, I was surprised. Uh, I was surprised by this because growing up and even in college, history was always the subject that I was least interested in and the one that I had the most trouble processing. Another game that did the same thing to me recently was Motorsport Motorsport Manager. I know almost nothing about motorsports, Mm -hmm. but I was in the mood for a good sports management simulator, and after a while while playing this, this, I found myself genuinely interested in Formula One racing. Uh, Since the interest began, I've been reading about it, watching some of the older races, and am excited to begin watching new F1 seasons. Um... When it begins later this month. Yeah. Uh, do you ever experience anything like this with games uh, based on real life uh, subject matter? Thanks and keep up the great show, Robert. Uh, I have a very good example, um, but I'm going to let you go first. Okay. If that's okay. okay. Yeah. I, I guess. The first thing I have to say is I just I love that I got to hear the phrase I was in the mood for a good sports manager. It's just something that I I never never really ex- expect. I may have misread that. Sorry, good sports management simulator. Yeah, yeah. it's it. But it it's just yeah. It's so interesting the kind of the kind of. It's just weird that that could be. Like an out of the blue draw, like gaming is it casts such a wide net. There's such a wide spectrum of experiences there, that something as detailed and specific as that, you can get a craving for something that's 
that narrow, you know. Um, but anyway, craving to learn about stuff. Um, there've been little bits of well, like we've talked about World of Tanks before. Um, yeah, World of Tanks was the, was the, a big big deal for yeah. me. Um, I, I've, I've had kind of similar things to a lesser extent with, um, some flight simulators with going back and looking at some of the, the, like the flight characteristics of different kinds of planes. Um, little bits of, I think, I think the, the math mind in me gets drawn into any, anything that has any building simulation in it, any engineering like I'll I'll look at, oh look at the way this bridge is. That's weird. Why is that bridge like that? And I go read up about bridge <laughs> engineering, and then it's Tuesday. Yeah. You know, like it's yeah. That yeah. Th that's kind of the rabbit hole that I tend to to end up going down with this this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, whereas, like, for me, you, you touched on it, right? Uh, World of Tanks was a huge catalyst for me for learning uh, World War II history, and it only got compounded when I started playing uh, the tabletop uh, miniatures game Bolt Action because then I really started focusing on armies within World War uh, yeah. within World War yeah. II. So that's it. Um, the tank side of things, that's how I started to learn about uh, the Eastern conflict. So this is, like, Russia... Romania, Hungary, Germany, of course, uh, who, who caused a lot of the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, even as far as like the, the, the Russian-Japanese front, which was such a weird, ugly conflict. Um, and like the, the way that the Japanese started into World War II um, with the occupation of China and Korea, which, again, a really sort of ugly piece of history that not a lot of people know about. Um like it's just i mean that all came from an interest in a video game and then an interest in yeah, a miniatures game yeah. um another good example i can think of off the top of my head was medieval total war 2 oh, okay um, yeah i mean there was a little bit of that in rome total war but i didn't really feel like getting too deep into it but the medieval stuff i started getting interested in in uh, some of the factions in that um, in the same way that Robert did for uh, Europa Universalis IV. Um, and you just sort of want to understand why these factions exist where they are and how things actually played out. I mean, a, a really good example is the Knights Templar. Like, we only recently learned that they took the time to sail across the ocean and hide a treasure on Oak Island in, uh, <laughs> no, like, Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. Like, what the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. like weird weird stuff like history is so interesting when you're not getting marked on it yeah um and i'm not saying that it it doesn't have value academically 100 percent it does but i feel like the way that it's being taught is uh often it's just not unapproachable and disconnected yeah that's a good that's a good way to yeah. saying it and i mean that's fair like how 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 can you find a way to yeah, well i mean hats off to any teacher who can figure out a way to connect with a bunch of students who really don't give a shit about Rome. figure out how to get each other naked. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, like I, uh, you know, like, hmm. yeah, <laughs> once you hit grade eight, which is when history really starts to sort of amp up, 
like uh, or whatever grade eight grade nine like once you get into high school yeah um, pursuit is rarely preceded by academic yeah like uh yeah mm, mm. Um, it's hard it's hard i, well, I mean that's a challenge of all that, high please. school students but but we also i'm not hard thinking about high school that's that's not what i was saying but you brought Thank me you. there and then i yes. said it. yes you're welcome okay let's, well, let's okay. leave okay yeah. well there's lots to clip out of that Robert, all right Robert. um <laughs> Anyway, what have you done? Anyway, so that there are, I was going to say that oftentimes I find it's the setting of things that will pull me in as well. Um, yeah. I, I don't know why I was thinking of, uh, there's a, a stealth game called the master plan. Okay. And it's, it's just like a, a heisty heist game. Uh, you get guys with like shotguns and there are policemen <laughs> okay. that walk around kind of thing. And you have to break into saves and, and steal you know, old timey sacks of, of cash out of different places. And it, it, that whole thing at, at some point a couple of years ago set me on this tirade of like researching Al Capone. And I, it, wow. yeah. And That's it's interesting. just, yeah. Oh, I kicked my car. Kind of, I, I don't know what it is about. Maybe it's cause I, I like getting pulled into worlds and settings. So hmm. that kind of, that, that, gets things sparked i don't really know why it's unusual okay it's weird all, all right. right well cool yeah cool, cool, cool. thing cool um i mean i learned world geography from total war both rome and medieval yeah. um i wouldn't know where some places yeah are. no no for like, sure especially for sure. european like european geography i wouldn't know where some places are without yeah. those games because how often do i look at that part of the map um if your life doesn't force you to yeah um, it's 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 not a daily thing for us so yeah yeah being north american sorry everybody yeah. from europe yeah. it's we, just, we know in the same we way, know europe yeah. is there yeah in the same way that we're not like 100 <laughs> percent on top of what's going on in south america right yeah. like um yeah but uh yeah it's you know you know where you live hopefully and if you don't yeah, Maybe your parents shit. do. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully your parents do. Um, okay. So then uh, yeah. did you want to say anything else about this email before we move on to the next one? Um, I feel, no, I don't think so. I feel like I, I want to, but I, I have nothing else on the top of my head. It's, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, Robert, like great, great yeah. questions. So thank you for writing in. Uh, uh, so that's Robert Ring from uh, Classic Gaming Podcast. Um, but I think uh, there's more to explore yeah. there, but I'm blanking. It's okay. There's uh, lots of examples if you want to think yeah. about it. Like uh, another example is you know the geography of the Caribbean because of pirates. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, the stuff like that. It's crazy what you end up learning. Um, so, uh, do you want to do Greg's or shall I do uh, Fred's? We might as well do Greg's next. Um, okay. Yeah, so Greg ahead. sent us another book and a half. Um, That's not true. <laughs> It's not that big. Uh, Well, he opened it up with, let's keep this short, mainly for you guys. I take the topics as single emails because they are generally different things entirely. And that's what we're going to do. So the second half of Greg's email, uh, we've already burned, and we're going to deal with that crap later. Uh, So for the first part, on Sims, generally the point is all games are simulations. Uh, FPSs are games that let you kill stuff or experience military squad work without needing to worry about the reality of death or the consequences thereof. Sims to me are appealing because they take the essence of a game and boil it down to its base enjoyment. 
then polished into something easier and more fun. Stardew was popular because of because of those that came before it. But that said, its appeal would still be surprising for many. Uh, my dad used to think it was hilarious that I complained about helping him in the garden, but then enjoyed doing the same thing in Harvest Moon. Affordability seems like a really weak argument, mainly since the concept of a hobby farm has become a thing in recent years, and it's generally not older generations doing so, it's usually millennials, which would be the generation that this theory would be talking about. Is there a question there? Or was he just he's, just he's just talking about um, uh, some of the things about having a digital farm kind of being the wish fulfillment of... Oh right, you know this goes back to it's the the home yes, comment, yeah. right? The 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 home conversation, yeah. the simulations, yeah. So sim like Sims by their very de- definitions are simulations of wish fulfillment. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting how he breaks down what an FPS is, um, sort of like this military experience, which is so weird because like my first. Yeah, the first FPS I ever played was Wolfenstein, but the second was Doom, which was not your typical tour of duty. <laughs> no, no, right? but but like, it was a simulation of like an action hero movie, right? It's still yeah. still very militarized. No, and I mean contemporary yeah. contemporary shooters. One hundred percent think they're for every <laughs> single out of the box style shooter that might come out. There are two to 17 <laughs> military shooters. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. He's 100. Yeah. Like 100% there. Um, Stardew was so popular because, because of what those came that came before I, it. I partially, I, I partially agree like a hundred percent. It is built on the foundation, like the bones of many different games, but like the, the largest of those bones, uh, the largest parts of that skeleton is harvest. Yeah. Moon. Um, I would argue that the combat, a lot of the combat feels very like Super Nintendo kind of Secret of Mana style sort of combat, yeah. even though it's not complicated or deep. So, so um, I, I guess then, do you think that Stardew would have been not as popular? Well, would it have been at all popular without Harvest Moon or Animal Crossing? Uh, it's that, again... A uh, very tough question. Um, just yeah. because of the way that um, games media works now, uh, you get the word out that something is good, and enough podcasts start churning it, and enough outlets start talking about it. Like, if a game is good um, and has a general appeal, then, uh, uh, I mean, aside from the fact that there's so much saturation going mm-hmm. on right now, um, but if you... The, the hope is if you make a good game, somebody's going to notice at some point and talk about it, and then it will catch on. Um, like a, a good example would be FTL, right? I'm not sure how, how much publicity was going into that, yeah. but once a few popular, uh, once a few people at popular outlets played it and talked about it, it exploded, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I, I guess to pick up on just that term general appeal, do you think that that general appeal would have been there without the history of similar games without Harvest Moon and Animal Crossing. Hmm. Be- now that is a that's a better question, yeah. Um I think that there are people who are playing Stardew Valley who didn't play Harvest Moon or anything like that. I think that. that's a safe bet. And maybe 
maybe the appeal was that they had never played anything like that because Stardew is definitely the most approachable Harvest Moon you'll yeah. ever play. Um, but uh, it's that's tough. Um, like uh, st- the, the the biggest issue with Harvest Moon right now, like a hundred percent, it has a pedigree. Um, but like it's a thing from the past. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh. There may be one or two Harvest Moons coming out in the future just because Natsume, uh, if that company even still exists, I don't even think it does. I thought it went tits up. Um, But the the company that does Harvest Moon, like, basically folded um, after a bunch of, like, derivative Harvest Moons released on a bunch of different systems um, that nobody was buying because everybody had already played it, and every time they tried to introduce something new or different... Everybody wasn't just different sort of enough, yeah. Right? So, like, the answer was you needed to make a different game that was not 100% Harvest yeah. Moon. Um, yeah. And not put all the weird Japanese quirkiness in it. <laughs> so, um, at least if you wanted it to resonate with American yeah, audiences. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. Mm. Hmm. Does that answer your question? I don't know. I... Th- I I guess so. It's kind of an impossible question to answer. It's hard to. That, I, yeah. I guess that, that that's more yeah, of a game like, design I, question. Because I, I, I feel like Greg. So. I feel like Greg at the end here is just sort of suggesting that. Hmm. It's generally not older generations doing it. It's usually millennials. Um, but is this like the hobby farm or playing Stardew? Mm, I I think he's talking about Hobby Farm there. Okay. But uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So How do you feel I about think, that? Yeah, just gaming game to his his genre history. I guess is a big important thing in terms of popularity. But all all games huh. all are all games simulations. I I I, 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 I would I think I would fight him about all games being simulations. Well, yeah. When I heard that, as soon as I heard that, I sort of clammed up a little bit and I got a little grumpy. I'm gonna be (laughs) honest. (laughs) Um, uh, Sims to me are appealing because they take the essence of a game and boil it down into its base. The essence of a game. Mmm. 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 Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if my brain's at a point where I can actually dissect this and uh, hmm. make it make any sense. Uh, you're welcome to. If you think you can pull this off, <laughs> you're, you're, you're welcome well, to fight Craig. I think that, that Sims to me are appealing because they take the essence of a game and boil it down to its base enjoyment. I think I think the word game is wrong there. I think he means to say Sims are appealing because they take the essence of something that you're simulating of an, of experience. an experience and boil it down to its base enjoyment and then polish it into something easier and more fun. Yeah. So so then it, the argument is kind of that like a game is a simulation but more enjoyable and less real. <laughs> Which I I don't know, maybe that's fair. <laughs> okay. Um, hmm. Do we hmm. want to spend much more time on this? Is there anything else we can say about um, it? 
Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, if the simulation side of games is always the drive either. You know, I, d I don't think that FPSs are necessarily about experiencing military squad work or needing to worry, you know, or getting to shoot things without worrying about it being real. There, I think there are other reasons that people can enjoy those games. I'd like to think that there are other reasons that people can enjoy those games. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I like your it's, optimism. Uh, yeah, i just leave that there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, you know what, Greg? Thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you for that. We've got, um, we've got a few more. We've got a few more to get into uh, from you, so we'll break that into a couple episodes. Yeah. But next, I'm gonna read. Uh, we've got an email from uh, Fred Rojas. Uh, so he's from um, uh, Gaming History 101. Uh, uh, dot com for anybody who's not a a hundred percent familiar with Fred. So <clears throat> here, I'm just going to take a little sip of water. I like that. I cleared my throat. In yeah. My yeah. Mouth. No, uh, everyone, everyone liked that. Rest assured. <laughs> okay. So, uh, greetings, Chase and Stu. I was going to remain silent regarding a resident evil two discussion, but you both had me gnawing at the bit, <laughs> not due to inaccuracies. Your discussion was fine. And the random things you didn't know didn't really matter but because of things you didn't know that I can shed some light on. First of all, the ports. There are quite a few ports of this game uh, over the years, and I've, uh, I've collected all of them in this video, comparing each of them that have gotten some buzz on YouTube. That have gotten some buzz on YouTube. So his, yeah, it's uh, his version uh, video yeah. of um, Resident Evil 2. Yeah. So I'll make sure to include that in the show notes for anybody who wants to see it. I should probably watch it. Um, so I, I believe that I'll spend some time and do that. Um, and it's it's actually pretty interesting when you think about all the different versions of that game because there are a yes. lot, um, a lot more than yeah. you might think. Um, second of all, the Resident Evil remake. It's still not been shown off to the press, but most think it'll be either akin to the remake of the original on the original GameCube, which was, I mean, I have played it on the GameCube. It was pretty good. Or shift to first-person perspective for Resident Evil 7, which is something that, like, scares the shit out of me. Like, <laughs> I think that that would be awesome, running through Raccoon City uh, during full outbreak. I think I think if it was the former, that it would be, or we would have seen a release already. Although, if it's the latter, they had better do a strong redesign. Yeah. As Stu said, the design of the game depends largely on the limited perspective, and if you change that without redesigning, you could have a Metal Gear twin snake situation on your hands yeah uh thank you thank you for that one hey that's a little close to home <laughs> a lot of people don't know that we like spent a lot of time in the city that uh house silicon knights uh, um yeah that yeah. happened um <laughs> as for resident evil 7 in vr it was limited uh to the ps4 only because sony uh paid for exclusivity Initially, I think it's. I, oh no, 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 no. Sorry, I'm uh, sorry. That's right. The Vive, uh, or is it the Vive? Oh my God, no, it's PSVR. PSVR yeah. Jesus, Chase. Yeah. Okay, is limited to PlayStation only because uh, they paid for exclusivity. Wow, they must have paid a lot of money for that. I've played that version. It is terrifying, and I adore scary <laughs> games. And the controls have some setbacks. 
Mm-hmm. You can either use traditional FPS controls like the game outside VR, but many, myself included, experience nausea because the brain doesn't feel you moving, yeah. but sees the movement and doesn't trust your eyes. Um, many believe the nausea in your brain is your brain thinking you've been poisoned. Yeah. <laughs> That's horrible. For the record, I don't have, or I don't and never have experienced motion sickness outside of VR in any way. Um, the other scheme basically makes your vision fade in and fade out while turning to avoid your brain from freaking out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Walk, walking forward and looking around uh, rarely cause motion sickness in most people, again, myself included. Um, the method sounds odd, but it totally works. That said, I don't f- really feel comfortable getting uh, getting through more than the first 90 minutes in VR and preferred going back. Hmm. If Resident Evil 2's remake does take this style, I'm sure you can expect... <coughs> excuse me. I'm sure you can expect them to implement uh, the VR just because it'd be an easy implementation. Finally, a question. I wanted both of your opinions on new educational mode in Assassin's Creed Origins. So that's the discovery mode yeah. where you basically, yeah. Um, it basically gives you full access to the map, but you can't fight, kill, start missions, or do other uh, do much other than explore. Along the journey in a realist, or yeah, along the journey in a realistic Egypt, you will encounter prompts to learn historical information about the setting. It sounds pretty cool until you consider how much it contrasts with the game itself and makes you wonder if it should be in there at all. Uh, to put to put it into schools means providing the main game as well. And despite teachers uh, starting, starting you in educational mode, it would literally be seconds before students swap over to the main game and start playing. That is pretty funny, actually. That's, that's actually a great twist uh, next thing you know a parent is frantically yelling at the school about their 10 year old seeing a decapitation <laughs> a school mm-hmm. computer um, on the other hand I think that was something you could possibly see back then so perhaps it's historically <laughs> accurate <laughs> uh, thoughts is there educational merit or is it merely a mode a bunch of gamers ignore and is better suited as its own segregate module. Uh, love the show, Fred Rojas. Okay. Yeah. So, ed- educational mode in uh, games like Assassin's Creed Origins and specifically uh, Assassin's Creed Origins, uh, you are not going to put this game in a school. Uh, the the <laughs> game itself has... You can't. You just you can't. Right? That's not yeah. what... Even, well, even if... Even if you, they just make a version that is just just that game, the ex- exploration. Yeah, it would have to be like the the It'd violence so and stuff much, would have to be stripped yeah, out. Yeah, because the liability is so well. Huge. Uh, that's um, what that, I mean. I think it would be possible to actually create strictly the educational mode and install that without the actual game, without you know any of the animations or anything that could be violent. None of the interactions or any of that. Like the yeah. Might not be easy, but I'm sure there is technically a way to do that. Yeah. Actually, what's weird is this got me thinking about um, actually Robert's email and um, and 
like history. Yeah. Um, I I remember like some of the most entertaining parts of uh, learning history uh, came from. I think it was in grade four or grade five. We were learning about the medieval era, and it, we didn't get too specific, but like we ended up having like a feast at school, huh. <laughs> and I remember that. Um, so it was like when you put yourself into that situation, then this is where games really start to shine, right? So like the immersiveness of that module in Assassin's Creed, um, as long as it works. Now I haven't had hands on, so I can't, I can't really talk about it, but I mean, as long as it works, yeah, but, um, it could be maybe entertaining. It, it, I, I mean, it would be good just to see it. Um, I know that they they've modeled some stuff. They 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 even admit that there are some inaccuracies. Like this isn't what this actually yeah. looks like. This is modeled off of something else somewhere else. But the the thing is that um, they've made other educational walking simulators and that kind of thing in the past as well. And I I I don't know if that's really the the kind of thing that's going to pull kids in maybe it is and i just don't know but i i can't see it actually being mm, i feel incredibly like immersive i feel like you put this in schools and you're going to see an uptick in uh programming so that people break the game so that they can play the actual <laughs> game <laughs> Right, yeah. like it was the same thing with the with, TI uh, calculators. That we had. <laughs> well, even just us, even just um, with with me growing up, um, like we had a Commodore sixty four, and somebody would bring in things like ro- uh, what was it, uh, Death Race, yeah, yeah. right? Um, where you're like running over dogs and old women and all that yeah. stuff, um, <laughs> or or e- even like the, the the beginnings of like LAN when um when our high school had first established uh the the, the full school wide network and then the first thing that happened was in, in the in the <laughs> tech lab uh everybody was playing yeah. quake yeah, right sure. like uh just playing quake 2 or um other shooters um uh it's tough when you actually take like a video game and try to use it to teach in schools um yeah man i want to see that happen and i want to see it work i would love to see people like teach about really anything like you just actually use a video game to teach about stuff because it is insane what you pull from it like we've already established uh playing playing certain games like pirates and stuff you learn about the geography of the Caribbean and who's involved in in uh, in piracy as well as like legitimate trade, which ships are better to to raid stuff like that. Um, with World War Two, like that, I learned really really valuable lessons about the different types of tanks from uh, World of Tanks. But World of Tanks is another one of those like sort of greasy, um, yeah. more doors open the more money you throw at me sort of games, right? Like. I, I do enjoy the time that I spent with World of Tanks, but I'm not ignorant to the model that they use. And the model that, that they use is, there's a free game here, but if you want the better game, you had better throw money yeah. at me. Um, I, I, I guess the fact that it's Assassin's Creed doesn't really weigh in for me. The fact that it's a walking simulator that maybe has, like informative text boxes that pop up that's really not like 
that's kind of betraying the the purpose of the medium of a game. Right? I guess it depends how beautiful it is. Yeah, but, but I mean, you can also just, just go show on someone YouTube. some fucking pictures and some text underneath that says, hey, this is what a pyramid looks like. It's a pyramid. It's really freaking big. Right? Mm. It's. But if you could walk uh, into uh, those pyramids. Uh, uh, one of the most important parts of a game is player agency. When you yeah. have a walking simulator that does nothing but throw educational text at you, you have no agency. So you're, then you're using the computer and a game engine. Where in and Egypt is Carmen San Diego? Something to that effect would be much better. Yes. Gotcha. Where in ancient Egypt is Carmen yeah. San Diego? And we're going to send the guy from Assassin's Creed <laughs> to go shanker. Fantastic. Yep. Got it oh, sorted. Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Solve that problem. Um, Carmen San Diego, wow. your name, da- names are numbered. Yeah, your names are numbered. The, Carmen yeah. and Sandy, two the names. Price, the price for time travel is a price on your head. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. yeah, the guy from Assassin's Creed, uh, this this version of Assassin's Creed Origins um, is maybe going to come yeah. and show up. Or his wife. His wife might show up. I hear she's pretty badass. Oh, well, there we go. Um, yeah, girl-on-girl girl fight. Carmen Sandiego versus the world. Um so we kind of dealt with that. I just want to make sure. I don't think there are any other questions buried in here. Yeah, um, I, 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 like, I, the, my, my short answer is liability, Fred. <laughs> like it would never happen. It's, it's an M-rated game. It'll just never happen. Or if it's not M-rated, like it's teen, so you'll never see it in elementary yeah. schools at least, and it would be very hard to actually get it embedded in high schools I, without like stuff in place to make sure that you can't crack it. I guess since we've seen already uh, schools pulling in things like minecraft i guess i would follow that i'd be more inclined to follow those uh those schools or those projects a lot more than um the walking simulator and and maybe i'm not maybe there's something about the uh Asgard origin that i'm i'm missing out on that I'm, I'm not seeing but from it's beautiful yeah but from what i've seen it's it's just not if you want to use gaming to introduce education to, to students, that's not that's like a good example of how not to do it. To me. But okay, but also think about like the premise of our of our show in general. Like, do you feel that a twelve year old who plays Assassin's Creed's or, or Assassin's Creed Origins and I'm gonna say let's let's just pump the brakes, ignore the educational mode which is what basically every player is mm-hmm. going to do anyway. Um, and just say somebody plays Assassin's Creed Origins. Do you feel that they'll learn anything about ancient Egypt just by playing the game? Because I feel like they will. I, I feel like the, the, it, it's like a heavy-handed and themed story. Yeah. Right, and some of it may be a little off the wall because it looks like the the DLC is very much about religion, um, but and like actually like mystic oogie boogie kind well, of religion. Well, um, that's but yeah, that, go that's ahead. just it. Then the lessons that people are going to learn if you have young people playing the actual Assassin's Creed series, they are going to learn um, the Egypt that has been portrayed through them through the game ubisoft's yeah, egypt it's gonna be yeah yeah which is i mean to their own admission inaccurate i mean f- obviously 
yeah. But I, I mean, that's the case with basically historical representation yeah. in almost well, most well, games. And I and would and say. they're not a hundred percent. And it's like they talk about the scale of the buildings and all that stuff. But I I because I'm like absolutely a hundred percent ignorant about it. My biggest hesitation would be what are people taking away about the culture that's represented? Well, that's, yeah, that's tough. I mean, I'm not going to say they did a bad job. I, I, to all... Okay, I let's put it know. this way. I haven't I haven't heard a single... Uprising. Complaint yeah, about it? Yeah, yet? I don't know. Yeah, but, but I don't um, know, and I don't know. So, I don't know. And it does seem like they took the time to research... Right to actually put a little bit of effort in to understand the time period. Um, I would, I would, th- like I would yeah, assume so. Also, like anybody, I mean, even at twelve years old, like you understand it's a game. Hopefully, right. Most people understand it's a game. I know that I'm starting to sort of take liberties. <laughs> generalizations, <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, yeah, it's a generalization. But but, uh, but yeah, I, when you I'm throw it into a school, those generalizations will hold for the most part and then you know the schools are the place where you you can't you you gotta be super safe and all that so yeah yeah Uh, well because we know that there's always that one who will come to school with knives in his coat yeah who knows perform his own assassin's creed um yeah so let's not have that but minecraft in schools is cool at least yeah yeah so we'll see yeah. what happens. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, Fred, you took us down a strange, dirty, and confusing path. Um, we appreciate, <laughs> your, <laughs> appreciate your email. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, like, also for providing the link for, um, for the Resident Evil versions. I'll make sure that that goes into the show notes for anybody who's interested, because there are quite a few versions of Resident Evil. Yeah. Uh, I uh, this I don't know. Like I love this section of our show, but I feel like so many questions we just leave them not and it feels weird. Like <laughs> I'm leaving this one and I don't feel fulfilled. Um uh, yeah. But I don't yeah, know what well, else to say. That's the thing is that sometimes uh, some of these like maybe one of us should play that and then Break I'm, it down. I'm trying to get an Xbox One so that I can there play this go. stuff. Um, um, but we we can talk about that in because uh, some hands-on experience with it would, I don't know, probably sharpen it a little bit. But but a lot of it yeah. is, at the end of the day, a lot of it is like we're trying to break down some of the cultural impact, and like I'm a freaking shut-in. I don't know shit about culture, so it's it's <laughs> it's it's really Stupid. hard. <laughs> oh, Stu, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm of the opinion that any exposure to different cultures, uh, especially cultures that have been researched at least as much as Ubisoft was willing to put into um, the ancient Egypt, uh, the fact that they have an educational mode means that they this is something they were thinking about, like uh, actual authenticity when when creating the game. I feel like people could probably benefit from playing that game. I mean, the the story is still going to be like it's it's contrived, right? Like it's it's fiction. This is a fictional game set in ancient Egypt, 
but I feel like there will probably be lessons, um, perhaps even like a few mannerisms, stuff that they throw in there, um, socioeconomic representations that appear in the game, like that would be accurately representative of that historical period. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm thinking this is one of those situations where you would be surprised exactly what people will end up taking away. Um, and I know that the concern about historical accuracy is a thing, but at the end of the day, when you start going that far back, you can only yeah, get so Yeah, there's only so, so much you can do, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all I'm going to say yeah. about that. <laughs> because I don't know if there's much left to say. Um, so yeah, again, thank you, Fred. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Robert. Um, Stu, did you have any closing thoughts on the emails before we move into the next section? Uh, no, 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 that's, that's, that's good. That's good. Okay. I'll stop. Um, so next, <laughs> yeah, next section is what we've been playing. So Stu, what have you been playing? Oh, um, I've been playing, um, well, a little bit of Smite, been trying to stream Smite once a week, which is hard. Yeah. Um, a little bit of uh, Hexels, infinite, just like a, a puzzly thing to help me go to sleep. Um, That's nice. Yeah, That's cool. and then I have I've actually been playing a little bit of the Swindle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to talk about? Yeah, that? might as well. It's a stealth game. It's neat. It's kind of like. It's kind of Victorian steampunk. Um, there's a. I might as well do that now. There's a, there's a YouTube video that we'll put in the show notes that breaks down. It's about a 15-minute video breakdown of a bunch of the mechanics and kind of the things it does differently than stealth games have done historically. So kind of like trying to paint the game as being perhaps at, at you know at a next step in the evolution of stealth games and you can kind of see what they're trying to get at there's um yeah. the levels are random which is really interesting because traditionally most stealth games have very rigid levels level design is always something that's really important uh, yeah. but the the tools that you get kind of make that level design a little bit redundant so the, I, I guess the, uh, the the game loop is changed a little bit because most stealth games again have you know where you, no one knows you're there or somebody suspects you or they know you're there and this skips that middle step if anything sees you at all like all the alarms go off and you probably die right away you made a mistake somebody spotted you and they have a shotgun and now you're no longer there so mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a different flavor of stealth game in that sense the levels are a bit more malleable you can kind of roam around and do what you want but uh, I don't know there, there are certain things where the game ends up lacking a bit of depth because of that because it, it can be so easily reduced into um, it's it's very smallest details kind of conquering one small room at a time basically and it's there's always a right thing to do and it's usually fairly simple to pick your way through a level uh, but but the game itself is interesting it's 
I've almost gotten through my first playthrough. Uh, I've there, there's kind of a set timer where you have to do so much stuff. You have a hundred days to do a level, a specific mission, and I think I'm I've been through about sixty days, and I have pretty much everything unlocked. You you get money and you buy upgrades for yourself. I have I think almost all the upgrades, one or two more levels, and I'll have everything. So, on my first playthrough, I'm looking at, you know, about two-thirds of the time limit, and I'm ready to beat the game. And it's it's felt very simple. I don't <laughs> okay. know. There's, there's not a ton to it. It's interesting to see, because it's a different kind of stealth game, if you're interested in stealth games, at least, like, watch an LP of it. Um, or check out the video that we're going to link, because it, it does a decent job yeah. of breaking down some of the things that it does differently than other stealth games. If you're if you're a yep. big fan of stealth games, I would say pick it up because then the experience like it's a different enough experience that it'll be interesting at least for a while. Um, how do you feel about replayability for that game? Uh, would you play it again? I think if you wanted to go down the route of replayability, if you didn't actually get through it your first time, um, then the replayability would be there. Uh, if you did beat it your first time, or as soon as you do beat it, you could... Y you unlock so many abilities and so many powers. I think if you wanted, you could do some self-imposed restrictions, like you're not going to get this upgrade, you're not going to get that upgrade. But I don't think that that would make the game any more fun. So I... Like, the technical... If you really, really do enjoy the game, I think you can choose to make it harder for yourself, but I I can't see myself going through it again, no. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It, I don't know. It, it's I'm, I'm glad I picked it up. I think there's there's some neat stuff in there, but... Um, it's absolutely just a stealth fanboy kind of game. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. Um, have you played yeah, anything else? It. That's it. Okay. Cool. Well, I played a little bit of Pax Nora, which yeah. was um, not as satisfying as I'd hoped. Um, <laughs> and I got to see the other 27 people who were on the did, server. Did Maybe there's more people now because it's the weekend. Maybe I should log yeah. on right now. Did, did but, you actually uh, play any PvP? Oh, no, that was too scary. That's too bad. No, everybody was like, everybody was ranked. Oh, Every okay. single person there was ranked. And I was like, I have no ranking because I haven't played in yeah. over a year. Um um, so then I also played a little bit of Stardew Valley, but I've talked about that, uh, sort of getting to the end of, of that, um, experience. There's only so much more I'm going to be able to pull out of it, unless I just want to keep grinding, but I kind of want to move on to other stuff on the Switch. I tried playing a little bit of Mario Rabbids, and I, it's not clicking for me, which is making me feel good that I bought it on sale. Quite a few people, I mean, it's turn-based, it plays a lot like, uh, XCOM. Um, except you give people um, piggybacks and <laughs> shoot them up in the air with your legs and, and you know it's all cartoony and goofy um, but it's for some reason it's just not clicking oh. like I like turn-based strats and I'm I'm not feeling this one like it's kind of entertaining but not really I'm, I'm waiting for it to click like everybody else talks about how, how good it might be but right now, I'm very happy that I bought it on sale and that I didn't buy it. <laughs> um, Fair. 
So I'm hoping. Yeah. I'm yeah, just yeah. hoping it gets better. Um, so then uh, the other game that I have unintentionally put a lot of hours into in the last little while is Stellaris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went back to Stellaris. Stellaris had a new uh, update, um, also a new version. It is now 2.0. Um, Stu, I don't know if you know this, but um, it has changed so much that FTL is now just hyperlanes to start. Huh. Neat. You, um, and it's because they figured out that there were some serious balancing issues when you could just warp two other stars, or if you were the, um, what was it, the, the gate, uh, the, the gateway, or the worm, not wormhole, it was like... Uh, lanes? Uh, star lanes? Gate, uh, it, was, it was like a, um, it was like a wormhole generator. Uh, you would set it up at the edge of your um, the edge of your space, right right near uh, where you would get into like a hyperspace lane, and then you could just shoot yourself out into anywhere within range, um, and then you'd be able to shoot yourself back as long as it as long as it was within your stargate uh, range. Oh, stargates! Oh, yeah, stargates. Go. Sorry. Um, yeah, they've gotten rid of a lot of that. Uh, they've introduced wormholes. They've introduced. Um, there's actually a like sort of like a space highway that if you have access to one of these nodes, you can go to any one of the other nodes anywhere in the galaxy. Um, so uh, like star yeah. Stargate, effectively. Um, and it's all really just to create choke points and stuff within yeah, yeah, yeah. right now. Um, and it's it's to create more tactical decision because you had people just busting into other people's territory from all different directions without any, um, especially if you were say you were a hyper hyperspace traveler, and you were stuck to the hyperspace lanes that were mapped uh, at the beginning of the game, and somebody with warp just shows up. Yeah. Like depending on the the random generation of that hyperspace lane, it might take you seventeen jumps to get to them, and it just took them one yeah. to get to you. So, um, you can unlock uh, these better FTLs later in the game, and it just me- it mixes things up as bad as it yeah. did. Um, but I mean, uh, you you have to get there. Uh, the the w- I'm liking what I'm seeing. And I am still convinced that this is, this has the potential to be such a good multiplayer game. But again, how how do you how do you give people the hours it would take to yeah. do it? That's that's um, the biggest. How do you get them all into a room? Yeah. Like I, I'm watching two different video series right now. One of them is actually published by Paradox, and it was just uh, Paradox got a bunch of. Uh, so Paradox is the publisher of Stellaris, got a bunch of YouTube gamers together and had them play and it was uh it was a let's play stellaris series and it it was based in uh, the 2.0 so they all had the same restrictions um they all had to play with the space lanes and stuff um and it was interesting it was really fun it was fun to watch these people try to figure out how to play the game and then have the game ruin them (laughs) Uh, i'm rooting i'm ruining that series um but yeah the the they are their own worst enemies to start, and then their inability to cope <laughs> is their greatest weakness. 
Um, it's actually pretty yeah. funny because none of them had played the oh, game before okay, beautiful. Um, going yeah. in. So none of them really knew, and they all just sort of made their own races and did their yeah. own thing and had their own petty little wars amongst each other. Um, it was It's really actually very entertaining to it. watch. And then the other series that I'm watching right now is uh, the Waypoint series on Stellaris where um, a couple of the editors, so Austin, Austin Walker, who's the main editor, and then Danielle... Uh, Rando and uh, and Rob Zachney, who's uh, like Danielle is sort of like the ethical center of the, like they're all just sort of playing together the same way that we played um, what was it Wasteland what? Two yep. where uh, Austin controls and Danielle and and Rob basically Shout. advise. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Danielle's sort of like the moral center. They've created like a space democracy, like a, basically the the millennial dream of. <laughs> a space democracy um i mean they're not they're they're sort of like hipster hipster democracy yeah. uh, out in space and there's nothing wrong with that like it, it's actually really awesome to watch them progress and every every race they've encountered has been like slaving despots <laughs> like horrible <laughs> trash can fire terrible people beautiful um like it's just really yeah but it's just such a fun series to watch them like the genesis of the race, like they create the race and then they go out into the stars and then they start encountering these enormous empires that yeah. are bigger than them because they've been like poorly micromanaging because they're talking back and forth and Austin just left everything on fast forward <laughs> um, because it's a real time game. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's uh, nice. it's interesting. So I, a lot more content to that because each one of their streams is about three hours, whereas the... Uh, the video series from Paradox was about, um, I think, maybe an hour total for all of the episodes. Okay, that, and, and that sounds um, about right, because you'd think the Paradox would be using something like that to try and sell more copies. Yeah, and you know what? It was, uh, I think it was effective. Probably so well like, done, yeah. When are you going to have a lamp? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Um, it, it would have to be internet-based, yeah. uh, realistically, in my yeah. life. But also, it looked like... It was over the span. It, they made it look like it was only a day, but I feel like it would have had to Multiple. been probably yeah. two. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So digging that game, uh, made a bunch of new races uh, to to uh, jump into 2.0, and um, I'm having fun nice. with it. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And that's all I got. Well, then that's all there is. Yeah, man. Okay. Well, hey, let's bring this baby to a close. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. I uh, hope that you've enjoyed yourselves. Uh, Stu, did you have anything quick to plug before we uh, shift off into the wherever the heck it is? Uh, no, no. Just the uh, that, that YouTube video of the Swindles design. That's uh, yeah. That'll be there. But that's that's really it. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, I'll make sure. Yeah, I'll make sure it's in the show notes. So then, um, I'm gonna say go check out Game Scoop uh, for popular contemporary uh, news on games. Uh, shout out to Fred Rojas at Gaming History 101 for having me back on for another episode uh, focusing on the Switch. So check out his site for that because it's already up. And uh, also just shout out for Fred to for uh, making great content and for <laughs> emailing yeah. us. Uh, shout out to Robert and Jay from the Classic Gaming Podcast. Robert also for writing in um, and uh, for having me on for episode 100 to discuss so my favorite games special. of all time. 
it's been it's been a long time since we recorded, so I my extracurriculars <laughs> had a few of them. Uh, thank you, Greg, for your email. We'll be getting back to it um, in the next episode. We'll be uh, pulling apart other parts of it. So uh, look forward to that or dismay. Yeah, yeah whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever you feel like. Um, and uh, if you, the listener who is neither, uh, neither Fred <laughs> nor Robert and is not Greg, um, <laughs> if you're listening and you're interested in sending an email, uh, feel free to give us some feedback. At www. Oh well, no, that's our website. Oh, where'd our email go? Um, it might be learned from gaming podcast at gmail dot com, but I'm not sure. There you go. Yeah, it's learned from gaming podcast at gmail dot com. Wow, it's that <laughs> part of the night. Um, we're also on Facebook, so you can shoot us messages there. Uh, it's uh, learn from gaming podcast. Also, we're on Twitter. I don't know the ad for Twitter, but we're on there. Just look us up. Um, and uh, if you want to listen to us, we're on iTunes. We're also on Google Sound. Uh, throw us a like. Give us a review. Stu, there is a positive review, by the way, on, on iTunes. Fantastic. I don't, don't know who did it. I don't know who sent it. And for some reason, uh, the information didn't get sent to my email. Um, so I'm going to read that next episode, I think. I'll read that right. out loud. Uh, so everybody can just wait, bated breath, um, <laughs> for that one. But it's nice. Uh, some nice things yay, said. Yay, nice um, things. And other than that, I think we're going to bring this guy to a close. Do you want to say anything else, Stu, before we go? I think that's it. That's 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 all I've got. That's, um, that's I like yeah, the, en- the end of all things. <laughs> yeah, at the end of all things. It's just, it's just a raspberry at the end of all things. <laughs>